want to begin today by finishing our series in the story of Abraham. I've loved preaching through Genesis part two, and I hope you've enjoyed it. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and say, I've loved this series. And turn to the other person and be like, he didn't give me a choice. I had to say it. I'm so sorry. Hey, with what I've loved is just sitting in the Word of God. It's just sitting in the story of God and just kind of saying, hey, how can we just sit in God's narrative? Next year, we'll get into Genesis part three, which will be Isaac and Jacob, maybe a bit of Joseph as well. We're looking forward to that. But we've been asking this question through the story of Abraham. What does it mean to have faith? What does it mean for us to be a people who actually live with active trust in God? And to do that today, I want to talk to you about, if I could give today's sermon a title, it would be this, the love language of God. The love language of God. Do you know what a love language is? Hands up who knows what a love language is. All right. If you're married and you need to put your hand up, you need to do your marriage alpha with uh, Bron and Stu Greenway and Brad and Cheryl Foote. It's a great moment where Gary Chapman, a couple years ago, probably like 50 years ago, not quite sure, before I was born, um, I'm, I'm not 50, um, there's this, uh, there was this thing that he released called Love Languages. And the Love Language is all about identifying the way that different people give and receive love. And there's five love languages. There's five. Some of you are like, oh my goodness, what's this? This is unlocking so much for me. Some of you are getting nudged by your partner. Be like, listen up right now. The first one is some people give and receive love through gifts. Hands up who loves a gift. My hand is up, just so you all know. Love gifts. Number two, access. That's wrong. Please don't give me gifts. I should not use the platform for people. <laughs> all right, guys. Um, anyway, acts of service. You know, it's, uh, cleaning the house, doing washing, that kind of stuff. That, so it's gifts, acts of service, words of encouragement. You did great today. You look beautiful. Everyone loves a good word of encouragement. Number four is quality time. The sense of having quality time, spending time together. And number five is, I have forgotten number five. Can anyone remember number five? How could I? That's actually mine. Physical touch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, now that's not just physical, intimate touch. It's like, you know, high fives or handshakes and that kind of thing. Now, the issue with this is, is that so often we expect people to give us love the way that we like receiving love. And we also give love the way we like receiving love. For instance, my main way of giving other people love and receiving love is actually acts of service. I love doing stuff for people. It's just like makes sense to me. As a type A leader, you know, a you know, guy who does to-do lists and gets stuff done, the way I'm going to love you is by doing something for you, right? So when I get married to Sarah, this was a big problem for us because I thought the way that Sarah would know that I was loving her was by letting her know how much I wanted to do. So I'll go out there. I'd pick up all the dog poo in the yard. I'd come inside. I love ironing. Shout out to all my ironers out there. I love a good iron session in front of the TV in the afternoon. I'd iron. I'd unstack the dishwasher. She'd be sitting on the couch, and I'd just strut past and be like, your Adonis is before you. <laughs> Settle down, sweetheart. It'll be okay, right? And then she would look at me. She'd be really sad. And I, and I, and I remember distinctly, we'd been married for 10 years, our first year of marriage. She'd be like, I bet, what's wrong? She's like, I'm just... I just don't feel like you love me today. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm covered in dog crap. What do you mean? I shouldn't have said the second word, dog feces. Uh, like, what do you mean I don't love you today? Like, at least you just unstack. I ironed your undies. Like, what's going on here? That's a lie. I never ironed people's undies. And, and, and then she goes, oh, but you just haven't spent time with me. See, my wife's love language is quality time. Anyone else there like quality time? You make no sense to me whatsoever. Like, like 
Quality time is not efficient. It achieves very little, and you have to spend a lot of time doing it. That last thing we did, that last thing we did with like that minute on the screen, that's quality time for me. Here's a minute, Sarah. Let's go. What's going on in your world? Tell me your deepest secret. Awesome. We're done. Now let's go do something else. It's like a boxing thing. My wife's always like, quality time isn't quality without quantity time. And I'm like, huh. So now we've got to have three minutes together every day, which is awesome. When we get to 20 years, it'll be four. Now there's this sense, right? where I had to learn to love Sarah the way that would unlock her heart, right? I had to actually understand that the way I thought she wanted to be loved and the way Sarah wants to be loved are two very different things. So for our relationship to go deeper, friends, I have to spend longer than three minutes with my wife. And, and, and we, now, when I say have to, that's come across the wrong way. I love spending time with my wife, right? But what's grown in my heart over the last 10, last 10 years is this desire for her to know how much I love her. And that means to walk slowly through life. It means to sit and wait. It means not to rush through dinner, but to converse, to play a ball game. And I've loved unlocking my wife's heart over the last couple of years as I learn her love language and vice versa. Why do I say this? Because I think there's a love language to God. I think there's a love language of God. And for some of us, because we don't know it, I, th- I wonder if our relationships with God are struggling. I wonder if he feels dis- distant. I wonder, because we don't know God's love language, there's a sense where we're not quite sure what the next step in our relationship with God is. So what is God's love language? Well, I'm not going to let you wait to the end of the sermon for this one, because it's actually not that cool. It's not that exciting, but it's highly important. The love language of God is not one of the five. The love language of God is simply this. It is obedience. Now, I know if you're like me, there's a little sentence great, seventh grader inside of you. And if you're anything like me who spent detention, like every lunchtime in detention at seventh grader, and I said the love language of God is obedience, there's part of you right now that's screaming out in horror. You're like, no, you're like anti-authoritarian. You hate people telling you what to do. You're like, I'm not going to obey God. How dare you tell me that the love language of God is obedience? That's often because I think we have a really negative view of what it means to obey. When we think about obedience, we think about compliance, Compliance and obedience are not the same thing. Compliance is like this resistant agreeance to do something. Obedience to God is not compliance. God does not want compliance because there is a resistance in the heart. Obedience is willful trust. This is why Jesus says, you'll know my disciples because they are the ones who love me because they do, they obey my commands. This is the love language of God. And when we think of obedience and we think of like, well, I've got to obey the government and I, you know, they're forcing me to do stuff and let's you know, be anarchists and rise up. I think we think of obedience in the wrong way. The best way to think about obedience is like my relationship with my son, Archer. When I ask Archer to obey me, it isn't because I am wanting him to hate life. I'm not saying, hey, listen to me because I want to bring you misery. I have nothing for you but despair. Right? When Archer goes to put his hand on the stove and I say, don't touch the stove, it's not because I'm preventing him from having fun. I'm actually going, I know what that leads to. It's going to hurt you. Don't touch the stove. When Archer's like, you know, I want to stay up and party all night long, and I'm like, no, 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 you need to go have a nap. I'm not saying you have a nap because I hate him. I'm saying because I love him and I know how terrible 4 p.m. is going to be in our household if he doesn't get down and have a nap. Amen to any young parents out there. Right? That's the truth. And when we look at obedience, we look at it like top down rather than someone actually serving you, who understands and knows more. Why do I want Archer to obey me? It's not because he understands. It's because I know what he doesn't. 
And you'd be like, oh, well, you should explain to your son. There are some things a two and a half year old just doesn't get. And in that moment, what am I asking him to do? Trust me. Trust me. I love you. And if we're going to talk about the marker of faith in the story of Abraham, the marker of faith is Abraham's decision to obey God. I want to start with a question today. What does obedience look like in your life? What does obeying God look like in your life? I actually don't think we ask this question often. But it seems to be what Jesus highlights is the longing of the heart of God. And so we step into the story of Abraham today, like unpacking this idea of obedience. And so come with me. Some of you already be like, man, I don't want to talk about obedience today. It's the last thing. I actually think it's the most important thing we can discuss. We read in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, we come into the story. Now, the Lord was gracious to Sarah, who was Abraham's wife, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. We're in the story of Abraham, and if this is your first time in church or you've missed a couple weeks, we've been looking through the story of Genesis through the lens of Abraham. And we started in Genesis chapter 12. And if you're saying, why is it such a big deal that Sarah got given a promise? What is the promise we're talking about? Well, let me go back to the beginning. Back in Genesis 12, where we started five weeks ago, we started with Abraham. God rocks up into Abraham's world and says, Abraham, you're going to go to a land that you do not know. Come follow me. Come trust me. Come obey me. And as you do, I will give you a child. Now, Abraham is 75 at that moment. And so we kind of talked about how weird it was for two 75-year-olds to be told, hey, you're still going to have a kid. And and it's impossible. It's weird. And if you're around that age, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But there's this moment where God says, trust me. So Abraham does. But there's a moment when Abraham leaves his home, follows God and says, God, I just don't think you're able to give me a kid. And God says, come outside and look at the stars. Count the stars. Can you? No, you can't. Let me tell you this. Through your children, I will give you that many children. I will give you that many children, as many as numbered as the stars are numbered in the sky. Abraham, who at this time was 85, looks at Sarah and he's like, we've got to get busy. There's a lot of work to be done here for us to have this many kids. And we're going to be really tired. But then we find out that Abraham still, the child that God promised Abraham and Sarah that would be a blessing to all the nations still doesn't come. So what does Abraham do? Abraham controls the story. Sarah comes along and says, hey, I don't have a kid yet. Maybe we should help God out with his promise. So why don't you go sleep with my servant Hagar and they give birth to Ishmael and they break the narrative because they refuse to trust in God. They refuse to obey God. God redeems the story. God blesses Ishmael and Hagar and he continues to be faithful to Sarah and Abraham even though they're disobedient. disobedient. Last week, Fiona talked about how God imprints his heart on Abraham's heart as Abraham learns to care for the world and for justice and mercy as God is weaving him into our story. And we finish the story this week by stumbling into God actually saying the promise has come. In Genesis chapter 21, verse 1, we see God say, we see a God deliver Isaac, their firstborn child, to Abraham and Sarah at the age of 100. Now, some of you are like 45 and you can't imagine having another kid. Imagine how much it must feel when you're 100, but they are blessed. There's a lot more laughs in the early service. There's a bit of an older demographic. And there's this sense, there's this sense, right, that this is the promise fulfilled. We're here. Thank God. Yes, Isaac has come. And so it's the promise has come. Abraham and Sarah are rejoicing and celebrating. But God's not done with Abraham yet. 
You see, in Genesis 21 verse 1, we see God deliver the promise, but God needs to know Abraham's heart because it wasn't just about the promise for God. Abraham wanted something. God wanted something more for Abraham than just to bless him. He wanted the whole, all of Abraham's heart. So we read in Genesis chapter 22 verse 1, the test of faith. Sometime later, we believe 12 to 13 years later, God comes back into the story of Abraham and, it's, and we read this. He says, then God's, uh, sorry, and we read this. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Now, I don't know about you, but this makes me uncomfortable. When I left year 12, I was hoping to leave exams and tests behind. And here we have this moment where God seems to have a precedent for testing those who claim to be his followers. You might be like, what? God's going to test me? That's, I'm, not, I'm not sure I'm okay with that. But once again, we have that reaction because we've forgotten the story of Abraham. We've forgotten that every time God stepped in and said, trust me, Abraham said, yes, I trust you, God. And at the first moment, he controls the story. He's like, yeah, yeah, God, I'll trust you for the promise until a better option comes along. I trust you to provide for me until a better option comes along. I trust you on Sunday, but on Monday, I'm back in charge. And so in this moment, when God's delivered the promise to Abraham, he wants to know if the promise has changed Abraham's heart. If now Abraham has the promise of a child in his hands, is he back in control or is he still surrendering control to God? See, here God is testing the obedience of Abraham. J.B. Phillips says it like this. He is testing the obedience of Abraham, not the understanding of Abraham. And why do I say that? Because sometimes we think obedience is about understanding what God is doing, and then we get to agree. What God is about to do is not explain himself to Abraham. Too many of us have decided not to obey God until we understand what God is up to. Unfortunately, that's not how obedience works. That's not how trust works. Proverbs 3 verse 5 to 6 says this, Trust in the Lord with your whole heart and sometimes lean on your own understanding. No, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. See, the antithesis of obedience is often you understanding what's going on. When we need to know why God is doing what He's doing, we're actually saying, God, I'll trust you when I know what you know. But that's not what God invites Abraham into. And it's not what God invites us into in the, in the story of trust. He says to Abraham, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replies. And God says this, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. This is a horrible moment. If you're reading this story and nothing happened for you, it's probably because you've read this story too many times. If you're reading this story and you hear God tell Abraham, go and sacrifice your son, and your reaction is, what is happening? This is weird. Congratulations, you are a normal human being and you have a beating heart in your body. That is good. How should we react to this moment? There should be a sense of horror in us. Sometimes when we read things like this in the Bible, we don't ask the right questions of it. Because we don't ask, right, ask the right questions of it, we don't understand what's going on. Because we don't understand what's going on, we then just stop reading it all together because we find it boring. We're like, oh, it says a bunch of weird things, so I'm just going to go to church. But, but I think God's actually inviting the question. What, what are you doing here? You're asking Abraham to sacrifice. This isn't just a lamb. This isn't like a, you know, an animal. This is his son. We should have that feeling. And I encourage you, if that's where you are, 
I join you in that because there's parts of this story that should assault our senses. But at this moment, we've got to be careful we don't let moral superiority rob us of what God is wanting to do in the story. So a couple of things I want to let you know. This story in no way condones child sacrifice. And in no way does anyone in this church who is a follower of Jesus, nor in the Jewish faith, would condone child sacrifice. That is not the point of this story. In no way does this story set up a precedent for how we should act in our modern day. That's not the point. This story is a unique story about God and Abraham, but also about how God is outworking salvation in all of time. It only happened once, never again in the Bible, would God go up to a father and ask this of his child because there is something unique happening here that never happens again. And I've got to be clear about that so that we can trust the story rather than worry, would God ask the same of me? Why is this important? Because if we don't do that, if we don't do the work of actually moving past that point and we, don't, we miss what the story is about, J.B. Phillips says it like this, God was not looking for sacrifice, but surrender. He didn't ask for a sacrifice of the son, but a surrender of the son. See, what happens in this moment, friends, is Abraham has received the promise. But so often what happens when we receive the gift of God whether it's financial blessing, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband, a child, a new job, a car, or life. Hey, even breath in our lungs. What happens so often is that we allow the promise of God to be the thing we trust in rather than the God of the promise. And what happens in this moment is God is saying to Abraham, you've been given everything you wanted. Do you still trust me? Or are you done with me? It's an important question. It's actually a question. I actually want to take a step back and let's leave Abraham and his son there and turn to our own lives. Because friends, so often we worship the gifts of God rather than the God of the gift. There are things in our life that we have made following God conditional of. Where we're saying, God, as long as I have this, I will follow you. And the danger of that is that we have made God a means to an end rather than an end in himself. Hey, God, I'll follow you as long as I have uh, you know, this and this and this. As long as I get a car, I will follow you so you can provide for me. As long as I get the life I want, I will follow you so you can provide. So God becomes the means to the life that we want rather than the life itself that we so desperately need. And the reason why this is important is that we fall into the trap of Romans chapter 1, where the created things take the place of the creator, and we start to worship that which God creates rather than the creator himself. And this in the Bible is called idolatry. Timothy Keller says it like this. I, it's been a long time since I've quoted Tim in a sermon. And so I think it's been too long. So here we go. Back into good old Keller. Like, Idols give us a sense of being in control. And we can locate them by looking at our nightmares. What do we fear the most? What if we, what if we lost would make life not, not worth living? See, friends, usually disobedience to God is a marker of something we're trying to protect from God. Usually when we are not asking God, where are you calling me to obey you? It's because we don't want to hear the answer. Because we're protecting something more precious to us than God. Timothy goes on and says, An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your head and heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you is what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly be worth living. There are things that have taken the place of God in our hearts and our lives. And when those things are threatened, we blame God. 
What is it when God says to you and beckons, come follow me, that holds you back? Is it the fear of what people think? Is it the fear that you might lose comfort and safety? The fear of losing financial control, of uncertainty. These things are fruits of the gods we worship, not the God we're called to worship. And I just wonder, what is the idol in your life that we are worshiping more than God? Whatever we protect from God is actually the God that we worship. See, friends, there's no such thing as being completely disobedient. All of you are obedient. We are all obedient. It's just to which God are we offering our obedience. The pressure for us to buy a house may not actually be God's heart for your family right now, but the pressure of that comes from a society, not from God. The pressure for your children to turn out a certain way or become a certain thing, and so you give up control and you take control and you're trying to navigate how your family looks and who you are, that's a pressure that's probably not come from God. The pressure to achieve, to earn, to strive, Some of us, friends, are feeling the pressure to obey the standards of our culture, not the life that God has called us to live. None of these are bad things, but when they become ultimate things, they're dangerous. So what does Abraham do to respond? Early in the morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place of God. There was no delay to the life of Abraham. Why? Because Abraham had a history of disobedience. See, those of you who know what disobedience looks like in faith, know how futile it is. Some of you here have a deep history with God and your life is marked by obedience now because your life has been marked by disobedience in the past. It is a wise Christian who recognizes that when God says, don't put your hand on the stove and you put it on the stove anyway, you start to recognize he was actually wanting your good. And so we go, God, I choose to trust you now, even when it doesn't make sense. This is the step that Abraham has made. He doesn't delay, not because he understands. He doesn't delay because he chooses to trust the character of God more than the comprehension of man. So he loads up his donkey. He grabs his son, some wood, some fire and a knife, and they head out together. In verse 4, we continue. On the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Now, this is a really crucial moment. See, Abraham travels for three days and 60 miles. This is important to recognize God has led him to a place intentionally. He wasn't like, hey, just go into your backyard and do this thing. There was a reason why God has led him for three days and 60 miles to Mount Moriah. And as Abraham sees that place, he makes a statement. We're going to go and worship. Now, that's a really important understanding of what obedience is. From when I say the word worship to you, what do you think? What is Abraham telling his servants he's about to go do? That him and Isaac are going to go and jump on the mountain, pull out a guitar, and Abraham's going to look at Isaac and be like, Hey, friends, it's great to worship together today. Who's ready to praise God? Amen? Praise the... Can't hear you, Isaac. Let's sing a bit louder. Like, is that what he's about to do? No, no, no. He's not going to sing Kumbaya on a mountain. There's nothing wrong with that. But worship is so much more than that. What What is he saying to his servants? We're about to go to God and surrender everything we are. That's what worship is. And too often... We treat worship as like this 15-minute moment of optional singing on Sunday mornings. It's like, no, I didn't really enjoy the set today. It's a bit, man, it's a bit so-so. But we'll worship again next week. Worship's not a song you sing. It's a life you live. And you can tell that by some people just rock up and they're like, I'm not coming to worship because I like the music. I'm just going to reach out my hands. The amount of people over the age of 80 who don't like the songs we sing, but they sing them anyway. You want to know why? They're not here because of their preference. They're here because of their God. 
And there are so many young people and families in this church who are timid in your worship. It's like someone said to you, we're a Presbyterian church. Shout out to the Presby. Is anyone in the room? Oh, no, there's a couple in the room. That's how silent it was. They're like, we're here. We don't talk during sermons, right? Or we're Baptists. Or maybe we're Pentecostals. And over here, we're like, man, Pentecostalism was weird. And what I believe God is looking for is an abandoned people who don't know just how to lift their hands and worship on Sunday, but live surrendered every day of their life. And I want to be in church when we rock up on Sundays, we don't have to question if people love God. We sing with such an abandon because that's the way we live our life. Could we be that church? We'll get there. But he says the second thing, we're going to worship and then what's going to happen? We will come back. What does he say to the servants? We're going to go surrender everything. And then there's going to be two people come back. Now you do the maths. If Abraham's going to go sacrifice his son, two minus one is what? One. But he doesn't say, I'm coming back. He says, we're coming back. Why? Because Abraham knows something about God. God made him a promise that it was through Isaac that he would receive generations. So he's like, I don't know how this funky thing's going to happen over there, but here's what I know about God. I'm bringing my son back with me. Why? Because God made me a promise. There's this Abraham's faith. He's not going there because he thinks God's actually going to take the promise, but because he's trusting God with the promise. He's saying, it's yours, God. But I know. You don't fail. You don't miss a beat. I'm coming back with my son no matter what that looks like. See, it was not about Abraham's understanding of the story. It was about God, Abraham choosing to obey the story God was writing and trusting the story that God was writing. Friends, obedience is not understanding. Obedience is surrendering control to a better writer. Obedience is trusting the character of God more than your comprehension. Where in your life are you like, I don't get what God is up to. Maybe this is a moment of obedience right now. But God's saying, trust me. But I don't understand. He is God and you are man and you are a woman. You are probably not created to understand the depths and realities of everything that's going on for the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. This is why Abraham is commended by Paul in Romans 4 verse 17, that Abraham believed this is the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Abraham goes, I think this God I serve can raise dead stuff and bring stuff back to life and create things that do not exist, so I'm going to follow him. He'd chosen to trust the character of God, the power of God, and more than that, the promise of God. He chose to trust the God of the promise. Who are you trusting today? So Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife as the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up. Which you're like, finally, right? It's like, Isaac, what are you doing, man? Like, are you in this? Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. The two of them went on together. Here in this moment, Isaac proves to us that he is the power of deduction. He has understood what it's going to take to sacrifice the lamb. He goes, Dad, We've been traveling for three days, 60 miles. I see the fire, I see the wood, and I see you've got a knife. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. I think we've got to turn around for home because some idiot forgot the lamb, right? I don't, I don't know if you know this, but I haven't heard any barring for a while. So, hey, we forgot the lamb. Oh, well, let's go home. And this is, he's kind of pointing out, he's like, hey, you know, Dad, um, when we get there, you know there's no sheep, right? And how does Abraham respond? God himself will provide. This is a pivotal moment in the story. Can I tell you why? Because Isaac has turned to him and said, what's going to happen next? And this is a moment where Abraham controls the story. 
Abraham goes, I don't know, man. I'm really safe. I'm scared. Maybe when we get to the mountain, you and me will rock, paper, scissors, and then we'll see which one of us gets killed, and we'll just see what God does. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe we should go find a sheep or a lamb just in case God changes his mind. Like, how about we bring five sheep with us? And maybe we go, hey, my five sheep or my son? Which one do you want, God? Go for the sheep. Like, like, Abraham doesn't do this. What does Abraham do? God will provide. Why is this important? Because there was another moment when Abraham got asked about where the lamb was. In Genesis chapter 16, verse 2, it wasn't a lamb but a son. Sarah turns around to him and goes, where is the son that God provided? And what does Abraham do? He doesn't go, Sarah, God will provide. He goes, I, I don't know. What do you reckon? And she's like, go sleep with my servant. He's like, good plan. And he goes off and he does that, right? Now, what happens that moment is he controls the story because he can't understand where the provision of God is. Not this time. This time he doesn't understand. He's probably scared. He's worried. This is the son that he loves. But when he's asked in question what happens next, his answer is, my God will provide. Why does Abraham say that? Because there is physical evidence in front of him. God provided me with a son at 100 years old. Boy, that was crazy. Like that's amazing in and of itself. So 13 years later, I'm going to look at his past provision and know his future provision is guaranteed as well. My God will provide. Friend, how many of us in moments of uncertainty take control back off God rather than making the first thing off our mouth saying, our God will provide? What if we were a people who were not worried, but rather we declared, hey, I don't understand what's going on, but God, I trust you will provide in this season. I trust you have this. I trust you are here because that's how the story ends. Abraham takes Isaac up and he's praying the whole way, God, I hope you provide. Please provide for my son. And then he takes him up to the top of Mount Moriah. And we read at the top of Mount Moriah, when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there, arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Abraham is there in this moment. He's like, God, I'm trusting you. This doesn't make sense. This is bizarre. This is weird. I hope no one writes a story about this that's read, that's read for thousands of years into the future, remembering the darkest moment of my life. Like, like there's, this, there's this sense of tension. And just before Abraham does anything, but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. There's brutal imagery here. We can get lost in how horrific this was for Isaac and how much counseling Isaac probably needed as he grew up from being his, his boy. But what we're actually called to remember here is that God steps in and that actually God didn't step in and go, oh, I hope I make it in time. God never intended for Abraham to kill Isaac. God never intended this for happen. He's saying, here I am, God. What's Abraham doing? God, when you call my name, I want to be exactly where you called me to be. Friends, when God calls your name, are you positioned in a place where you're like, God, you told me to be here, so this is where I am. What are you going to do right now? How many times does God call our name and we're like, not where he's called us to be? Abraham, the whole way, is going, here I am, God. You just tell me what the next step is and I'll take it because I'm not going to trust in my own understanding and all my ways. I'm going to acknowledge you. I'm going to trust you. You're going to save my son's life. I'm going to trust that you're going to make my path straight. God goes on, do not lay a hand on this boy. He said, do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. In this moment, God looks at Abraham and he says, I see who is on the throne. See, God never intended Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, because if Abraham had not brought Isaac, he wouldn't have had to intervene. God intervenes because Abraham obeyed and said, let me reveal you to my character. How many of us 
do not see the intervening hand of God in our life because we've actually disobediently wandered away from the path God has called us to. But in this moment, Abraham listens. Abraham, Abraham says, God is on the throne. And this is why God says, you have not withheld from me the promise. Therefore, I give it back to you. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Why does Abraham, after this horrific moment, turn around and go, I'm going to call this place, the Lord will provide. Why? Because he knew the human heart. See, whether it was the next day, when Isaac was an old man, when Jacob was an old man, or their sons or their daughters, or, or, or generations down the line, there would come a time when someone would question the character of God and the sensical nature of what God had called them to do. I don't know if I can trust God. But now there was a physical place. Hey, remember Mount Moriah. Remember the place that God provided. We've seen him rock up. This is our story. So every time you doubt God, you remember Mount Moriah as the place that God provided. His character can be trusted. His character is good. Hold firm to the God that can be trusted when it doesn't make sense. When life is hard, when finances are out of control. Remember our God is Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nisi. He is the God who will provide. Friends, too many of us have, have failed to build altars in our hearts of the moments where God has provided. So we come to a current season of difficulty. We're like, God, where are you? And he's like, I'm still the same God that did that. You're like, yeah, but where are you now? And he's saying, trust. And we're saying, no, I'm going to control. And we need to remember the location of where God provided in the past. So that God, we will attach ourselves to his character, not his promise. Friends, are you worshiping the promise of God or the God of the promise? Because here's the beauty of this moment. He gets Abraham to travel 60 miles, three days. Why doesn't he just take him outside and go do it here? Because God is so intentional. See, this mountain, Mount Moriah, isn't just the mountain where God would provide once, but where God would provide again. You might be sitting here today going, I don't know if I can trust the God that asks this of Abraham. Remember, friends, this isn't about asking if God would do this again. God was doing something greater. He was foreshadowing a greater provision, a greater story. See, Mount Moriah became the mountain around which the city of Jerusalem would be built. And thousands of years later, upon Mount Moriah in the center of the city of Jerusalem, they would build a temple in the place where God chose Abraham to offer up his son as a sacrifice. And it was on that temple, it was in that city, that on this day, thousands of years ago, on Palm Sunday, there was another son carried in on a donkey. On Palm Sunday, Jesus Christ was carried into the city of Jerusalem towards Mount Moriah. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, they would cry, worshiping him only for days later to curse him. It was up Mount Moriah where Jesus himself first received the wood upon which he would have to carry to Golgotha. That this son of God, friends, would carry the wood upon which he would be sacrificed. Why? Because God always provides. See, I said before that this story wasn't a precedent. It was a semi-lie. It wasn't a precedent for humanity, but it was a precedent for God. When you're wondering, can I trust God? How do I know God won't do this? How do I know God's character is good? How do I know God will provide? It's because in a moment, God required of himself what he will never require of you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believeth in him, shall not die, but have everlasting life. Are you a parent in the room today? Is your heart grieved at what Abraham is asked to do to Isaac? Are you in pain thinking how unjust this story is? 
How sad it must have been for Abraham to walk that journey and horrible for Isaac. And let me just say this, friends. Now you understand a smidge of what the cross was like for God the Father and God the Son. We are horrified for Abraham, but we walk into Easter as if it was just another event. God cried out in anguish on Friday and this temple was, the, the curtain was ripped. The earth shook because there was grief that this is what provision it would take to win you back. God sent his son to die a death that we should have died after living a life that we could live. Why? Because God always provides a sacrifice to give you a way home. Why? Why? Because he's saying this, would you just obey me? Would you trust me? So I ask you the question I asked two weeks ago, what else does God have to do to show you he can be trusted? What else does God have to provide other than his own son? What, what more would it show you that he is in your corner, that he is for you, that he loves you? And he's longing for you to say, God, I'll, I'll obey you with my finances. I'll obey you with my relationships. I'll obey you with my sexuality. I'll obey you with, with my job. I'll obey you with my career decisions. I will trust you because obedience is not about death. It's actually about life. I just wonder, what would new life be if we were a people marked by radical obedience? Not by optional obedience. When God said, go, we said, here I am, Lord. Send me. Would you stand wherever you are today? So I finish today with just some questions. When was the last time you were obedient to the call of God? I just want to sit there for a second. Obedience isn't something we do once a year. It is the very habitual lifestyle of a Christian. When was the last time you were obedient to the call of God? For this is the love language of God. Why? Because when we obey God, we're ultimately saying this, Daddy, I trust you. I trust you know about the stove. You know about nap time. I trust you. Where are you seeking to understand what God has called you to surrender? What are you seeking to control that God has called you to obey? We're in a really interesting time in Christianity in Australia. Cultural Christianity is on the way out. And I believe the Christians who will be Christians for the next 5 or 10 or 15 years, will not be those chasing comfort. It will be those living by obedience. It's going to get harder to follow Jesus, friends. The call is going to get stronger. And God is searching the earth for a people who will be marked by a humble and gentle response of obedience. Here's what obedience means. Obedience does not mean we do what God says out of guilt. We do what God says out of response. If you are struggling to obey God today, then the only thing you need to do is not walk out of here and beat yourself up. The thing we need to do is to pause, close our eyes, and look at Jesus, who was obedient on our behalf to pay the price for our disobedience. That when we fall short tomorrow, when we fall short on Tuesday, we have an obedient Savior and King who has gone in before us and said, I'll be your obedience so you have a way home every single day. 
When you struggle to be obedient, friends, it is not God you should run from, but the Savior you should run to. Would you close your eyes with me? So God, in this moment, I just sense there are people in this room who, and online who you're calling to obedience. I just want to say, I think there's someone here in this room or online who God's calling you to the obedient decision of responding to the gospel. Which means this, that God is saying to you, I'm looking for you. I love you. I want to forgive you. I want you to die to yourself and come live for me. And I just sense that right now God is saying to you, this is that moment. Will you follow me? Will you say, here I am, Lord? There's some of you here today who are Christians and you're marked by hurt in the past at church, at Christianity, at other people or whatever. And God's saying it's time to forgive and trust again. Some of you here today with such a tight hold on your finances or your family or your future or your career and God's saying it's time to let go. You're like, but God, I don't have the plan. I, I can't see the way. He's like, trust me with all your heart. Have I not always provided everything you need? So Jesus, we come before you and I just, I just want to confess, God, I struggle with disobedience all the time. But I refuse to let that be what marks my life. God, help us to be an obedient people out of love for you and a trust for you. I'm just going to stay in this moment of prayer. We're going to sing a song called I Surrender All. And I felt this all morning and then in the first service, I just chickened out because I was just chickening out and I was being disobedient and I just sense to make a call there are some people in this room right now that this is a moment for you and I want to encourage you that this is what I think the moment is to look like I actually think some people need to come and kneel and our small group leaders and section leaders are going to come and just sit with you they're not going to pray they're just going to come and I actually sense that there's an obedience that God's calling out and you're thinking I'm not going to do that Michael what would people think what are you protecting I just want to offer, maybe, maybe you might come and kneel. Maybe, maybe you might kneel where you are. Or maybe you just want to open your hands and surrender and go, hey, God, as we sing this song, I commit my life afresh to you. But I just sense that um, this altar should be filled with Christians who are saying, I'm going to obey God. And I just want to ask, just even now as I pray, if you want to begin moving before the music starts, if you sense God saying it's time, it's time to commit, it's time to surrender again. If you want to come and kneel. Now, if you can't kneel, you can only stand, that's fine. Keep your eyes closed. We're just going to create space for people to start moving. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Section leaders and small group leaders, if you can just even just come and just sit or kneel with people. I'm just going to sing. Friends, I, I believe as these next two songs are playing, just feel free to respond. And just come forward and make this a special moment between you and God and say, hey, God, whether you can kneel physically or you can't, Make an expression of surrender. Lord, we surrender all right now. Let's worship God together.